Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 5 and verse 1 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 is our passage today, and that can be found on page 860 if you are using a church Bible, page 860. Luke chapter 5 and verse 1. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and we come before your word with, with expectation and with hope that, that you would speak to us in it. We ask that by the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to your truth, that you would help us to see the glory of, of Jesus Christ. There are so many things we could be distracted with, and, and we ask that you would focus our minds and our hearts upon you right now solely. Would you please show us how much it is that you love us uh, for your glory, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It has been a, a pretty explosive beginning to Jesus' public ministry. Right away, as soon as Jesus opens his mouth, he is already preaching differently than the current ribes and scrabbies and other preachers. Jesus has this authority about him. And the sick are being healed, every person in the small town of Capernaum, all of them healed in a single evening. Jesus' authority over illness is undeniable. Scripture is being fulfilled and long-awaited prophecy is coming to fruition. Jesus states that very clearly in this, his midst, this prophecy is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is being proclaimed to a people under pagan and foreign rule and even the demons who are anti-God, the demons who have stayed relatively undercover in scriptural record, now it seems that everywhere Jesus goes, they have to come out and they have to cry out and declare Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And the crowd of followers is getting larger and larger with each passing day. It has been a pretty explosive beginning to Jesus' public ministry. And up to this point, Jesus' ministry has been to the crowds, and Jesus has acted mostly alone. But it is in our text that we find Jesus calling his first disciples to come and to follow him. Jesus begins to gather those very ones he is going to pour himself into and be intimately close with for the next few years. The, the very ones who will be the future leaders of his church. Jesus is calling them to himself. And we read in verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Jesus, of all boats to get into, he gets into Simon's boat. This is Simon Peter, and this is not by accident. This is a man who Jesus is going to call to follow him, would later be one of the 12 disciples and a future apostle. But before we get to his call to follow him, Again and again, we are, we are seeing that the priority of Jesus' public ministry is the preaching of the Word of God. It is a proclamation ministry. 
In chapter 4, verse 43, this was our last text, Jesus says there, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. At this point in Jesus' public ministry, his purpose is preaching. And we see that here with a growing crowd in front of him. They are there to hear the word of God, and Jesus is there to teach the people. Now, one might think, especially in times like we are in right now, that with this kind of authority, Jesus, over sickness, maybe your priority should be visiting the hospitals and emptying them. And maybe your mission should be coming to the cancer wards and putting them out of business. And maybe you should switch gears and play to your strengths and help the people where they think they need help the most, and that is with their physical bodies. I mean, if you were here today, Jesus, would you make it your mission to eradicate COVID? But the person who is sick and healed can get sick again. Peter's mother-in-law in chapter 4, who was fever-ridden all day, would likely get a fever again one day. Those who have once had cancer often can have that cancer return in another place. And those who defeat one ailment eventually will find themselves in another one. And ultimately, we will all one day die. Earthly physical healing is not permanent, nor is it ultimate. And even a healthy body with no ailments will eventually age and corruption will set in and death will prove inevitable. But what we have here with the coming of Jesus in these opening chapters of the book of Luke, we see the kingdom of darkness trembling, the spiritual forces of evil feeling their own demise. We see sickness and pain and how sin has ravaged creation and introduced weakness and illness into the human body. We see a pain and suffering which is undeniable. And we each and we all know that this world is a broken place. And this life is not the way that it is supposed to be. I mean, COVID is not the way that it is supposed to be. Six-year-old girls going missing is not the way it is supposed to be. Tensions raging higher and higher over differences of opinions. This isn't it. People consistently turning away from God and turning against each other quite frequently. The kingdom of earth is a messed up rule. But when Jesus comes we begin to see a little bit of what the kingdom of God is going to look like, where evil forces no longer reign, where pain and suffering and sickness, the effects of sin can be undone in a moment where even the most demonic of influences, they shudder in Jesus' presence, which is evidence that the eternal king is here and his kingdom is coming. And this is why we need preaching more than we need physical healing. Because we need to prepare ourselves for this coming kingdom. The urgency of John the Baptist's message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is preparation for the king and preparation for his kingdom. And the urgency is such that the main priority in this life is that we need to make sure we will be in his kingdom. That is the main priority for the sick will get sick again. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the grave, he eventually went back to that grave again. Even those who have had demons leave their bodies, Luke 11, 24 through 26, they may have even more unclean spirits who are more evil occupy their lives later on. 
Temporary fixes and, and passing good is not the main focal point of Jesus' ministry. Eternal good is, which is why the proclamation of the kingdom of God is a first priority so that the people might be readied and might prepare themselves for entrance into it. John Piper, he writes this, we live in a society that does not know the true nature of God and the gospel. They don't know the God-centered nature of what sin is. We don't. We, don't. we just think sin's bad because we hurt each other. Sin's primarily before the eyes of holy God. We don't know the God-centered nature of what sin is and what God's glory and law are and who Christ is and what happened on the cross and what faith is and what love is and what heaven and hell are. Therefore, to win these people, we need to develop structures of teaching. I mean, this is why when Jesus is being crowded out and the people are physically all over him, pressing in on him, he doesn't try to escape or blame claustrophobia or fatigue or personal inconvenience to get himself out of more work. My mental health is suffering. No, he asked for a boat to use as his pulpit so that he could teach them. Because when Jesus sees the crowd of needy souls, he gives to those souls exactly what they do need the most, and that is the Word of God. This is what we need the most. For we are people who need to get right with Him. You know, there's a lesson here for all of us as well for, for who are trying to get the Word of God out there. Whatever mandates, whatever inconveniences, we must make do with what we must make do with. But we must proclaim the Word of God, not our own Word, not some political agenda that doesn't prep people for the kingdom of God. We must proclaim the Word of God even if we have to sit in a boat to do it. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And may it be that this pulpit right here in this church preaches nothing else but that. Because the crowd and the watching world needs to know that sickness is not our main issue. Unclean spirits are not our main enemy. Government overreach is not an eternal matter. But our main issue is that people are not right with God. And his kingdom is coming, and his perfect rule, and his everlasting reign will be here shortly. And we must therefore prepare ourselves for it. For our sin again is not primarily against me and you, and you against me, although we do sin against each other. But our sin primarily is a violation against him. And our brokenness cannot be solved with quick fixes or leadership changes. Our enemies are not frequently that which is outside of us but inside, right here in our hearts. And Jesus' ministry here is a gift of grace and a heralding preparation so that we might be ready and not be found wanting when the kingdom of God does arrive. We are called to repent and to turn away from our sin and to turn away from anything and everything that we think is somehow more important than him and come to him and feel the freedom of forgiveness and the joy of grace and the glory of knowing God himself as our own. Everything else is secondary. We're even further than that tertiary. And so before Jesus begins to call those who would be his disciples, we see in these opening verses again a priority of the proclamation and the preaching ministry of the Word of God and the kingdom of God. We continue in verse 4 as Jesus beckons one Simon Peter to himself. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And we had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, this is a miracle. This is a context of the calling of Jesus' disciples in the book of Luke. Jesus is teaching them something about himself, and then he's going to teach them something about themselves. But they need to know who he is, and then they need to know who they are in light of who he is, and this miracle catch demonstrates a little bit more of who Jesus really is. What we have here is a group of fishermen who have fished their entire lives. And they come from families who have fished their entire lives as well in this very lake. They are the experts. They make their living being the experts of catching fish in this body of water. And they have fished all night and have come up empty. Sometimes it happens. While Jesus is preaching, they're already cleaning their nets, which means they are done and they are tired and they are likely more tired because they hadn't caught anything. But the carpenter Jesus and the preacher man Jesus, he tells the fishermen to take their boat and go out deep where the fish usually weren't and during a time of day where the fish usually are not biting. But Jesus is not asking. He is issuing a command with the authority of his own word. This is not a suggestion. This is a do as I say moment. And you can feel the annoyance in Simon Peter's response to Jesus. One commentator calls it a passive aggressiveness with a hint of self-righteousness. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. I mean, we just fish for a living and you make chairs, but whatever. And there's a doubt here. There is an annoyance here. But at the same time, there is an obedience here, however reluctant. One boat, one set of nets, and the catch is so much that the nets start to break. Then comes another boat to help with their nets. And as they're pulling their breaking nets with fish flopping all over the deck, the water level starts to rise on the outside of the hole because the weight of the catch is so heavy that they might sink these two boats. None of these fishermen have ever seen or experienced or witnessed anything like this. You can come up with whatever exaggerated fishing story you want to come up with. This catch is greater than that. Literally, this is a multitude of fish. Now, up to this point in Luke, we've seen Jesus' authority in preaching, Jesus' authority over illnesses, Jesus' authority over the demonic realm, and here we find Jesus' authority over the sea and its creatures. It is as if Jesus' word, at hearing that word, the fish jump into those nets with all their might, for Jesus Christ is their creator, and he is Lord of the sea. And Jesus can speak into the very area which you might not think you can speak into. The area of your own expertise. He knows it better than you do. All we have to do is obey. And I think there's something humbling, very humbling about failing in the very area of your expertise. And then witnessing someone greater than you are excel to this degree in the very place you have utterly come up short in. That in God's perfect providence, the fishermen catch literally nothing they come to an end of themselves after an entire night of trying, and they don't even have a single fish to show for it in the very area they're supposed to be performing best in, only to see another 
exceeds so surpassingly with the odds stacked against him. This is not explainable in human terms, which is precisely the lesson Jesus has for Peter and the other fishermen because they need to know who Jesus is. And this miracle catch demonstrates a little bit more of who he really is. And when we begin to understand who Jesus is, we understand more and more of how his word can speak into our lives and even into the areas of our supposed expertise. The Son of God can tell you how to fish because he's the Lord of the sea. Jesus Christ can tell you how to parent even that one child who seems like nothing seems to work on. Jesus Christ can tell you how to manage your finances. Oh, but this is a more sophisticated time. And this is for a different kind of mind nowadays and a spiritual one. Preacher Jesus can keep preaching but leave the investments to me. No, Jesus knows exactly why the human heart can't have two masters and why only one Lord can be our Lord and the other must bend the knee. He can speak into those very areas you may think he can't speak into. Jesus Christ can tell you how to be a proper husband or wife, even if your husband or wife doesn't believe in him. He's the Lord of marriage. He created it. Jesus has authority over your dating life, even when you might think he has no idea what it is you're going through. It's different nowadays with online dating. But if the Son of God can tell a Galilean how to fish his own lake, the Son of God can tell you how to best live your life because he has authority over all creation and we had better just listen and obey what he asks us to obey. What is it in your life that you think Jesus doesn't have jurisdiction over? Sometimes we say, right here, Jesus, all you. But right here, it has to be all me. What area in your life do you say, everything here I will obey, but not in this area or in this area? You have to let Jesus into that very area you seem to keep him regularly out of. And so again, Jesus is teaching these men about himself, and then he's going to be teaching them something about themselves. And these Galilean fishermen, they get a peek into the glory of the Son of God. And in light of who he is, they start to begin to know who they are, which we, what we find in Peter's response in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. When witnessing the glory of Jesus Christ, Simon learned something about himself in light of it. When finding out more through this miracle more and more of the identity of Jesus, Peter more and more begins to see his own self, and it isn't pretty. There, there's something about coming close to God that exposes something within each of our own hearts. You know, this past Friday, I, I was cleaning my smoker, and I was using my cell phone flashlight because it had gotten dark. I put in my waistband, and I was brushing and taking out the grills and the water pan and yada, yada, and I was elbows deep and putting it all back together. And when I get into the house... <clears throat> under a real light, not the little circle on my phone. I look at my arms and, and there's grease everywhere. I didn't realize how dirty I'd gotten. Fingernails underneath, soot, black mark everywhere. And for whatever reason, it was even in my nostrils. Now, I was dirty whether I knew it or not. But when I came into that light, it was altogether undeniable. And it was actually pretty shocking. That light, 
exposes all of that filth. And when Simon Peter witnesses a little bit of the glory of the Son of God in fishing, the radiance of that light of who Jesus actually is, when all of those fish who weren't biting at all jump into those nets and almost sink those boats without any kind of bait, Peter begins to see himself in light of who it is he's standing before, and then he can't even stand up anymore. He falls down at Jesus' feet, not because he's scared, oh, our ships are going to sink. We can throw fish over the, over the edge. We can always lighten the load. But he's afraid of who Jesus is especially in light of how Peter now views himself. R.C. Sproul, he calls this the, the trauma of holiness. It is that dread and amazement when a person is overwhelmed by the presence of God. It's the same trauma that Isaiah feels when he comes into the throne room of Jesus and witnessing his glory in Isaiah chapter 6. He falls on his own face and he cries out, "'Woe is me, for I am lost.'" I mean, he thinks he's going to die trauma. And when Isaiah declares that he is a man of unclean lips, even though Isaiah is a prophet, which means his lips are really the best part of him, and yet in the presence of Jesus Christ and in the witnessing of his glory, even the best part of me is trash. It's the same trauma that the Christian can feel from time to time when by the grace of God, we understand the holiness of God, which then makes us keenly aware of our own sinfulness and our own inadequacies, and it breaks us down feeling our filth and our limitations where the only relief seems to be to get out of that presence, which is why Peter cries out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He doesn't say, well, I made some honest mistakes, God, and we all make them. I'm only human after all. I just need a few mulligans. I'm going to do better next time. My good really does outweigh my bad, and I'm a pretty good person when all is said and done. No, he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter even changes the way he addresses Jesus here, not master, but now Oh, Lord, because he has witnessed the glory of Jesus Christ. And Peter, in this moment, wants to get out of that light for any kind of relief, some kind of relief. This is a crisis for Peter because now he has given eyes to see Jesus and also eyes, therefore, to see himself. John Calvin, in his writings on Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says, Man never attains to a true knowledge of himself, until he has contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. That's what's happening to Peter right here. He innately knows that I have no business being around a holy God and the divine one should not be in the presence of a sinful man like I am. He knows what the wicked demons already know, Hebrews 10.31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is what is happening within Peter. He is utterly broken down. And at the same time, while he marvels at Jesus' authority, he is filled with dread at his own wretchedness. And so Jesus, again, when calling a man like Peter to come and follow him, he first teaches Peter something about himself so that he might learn something about himself in light of who he is. They need to know that. All of God's followers need to know who Jesus is and therefore who they are in light of who he is. 
And seeing Christ makes a man like Peter utterly aware of his own sinfulness. But look at how Jesus responds to him in the second half of verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Do not be afraid are the first words that come out of our Savior's mouth. Now, how can he say that? This is a sinful man before the holy God. You know, when Adam and Eve, they first sinned in that Garden of Eden, what did they do? They fled. They hid. They covered their bodies with leaves because they were so ashamed of themselves after they had sinned. And they had that same dread, which is why they did go into hiding. And yet we find God calling out for them. We find our God looking for them. And when God comes to them, he does not kill them, although they're blaming him and each other and everybody but themselves. He doesn't kill them, although they deserve to die. The wages of sin is death, but God kills an animal instead and covers their nakedness and their shame with the animal's skin. That's the end of Genesis chapter 3. When Isaiah is in that throne room of Christ filled with dread at the trauma of holiness, lamenting at how unclean his lips were, an angelic being takes a burning coal and touches Isaiah's mouth with it, purifying the very place where Isaiah most felt his iniquity. That's Isaiah chapter 6. And here it is, Peter is afraid, and rightfully so, and all of us, and any of us, if we only knew a fraction of the holiness of God, would be just like Peter if we were to come into his presence, depart from me, I am a sinful person, and yet Jesus says here, do not be afraid. It's because throughout scriptural record, as humanity has sinned again and again, we find God searching for him again and again. Now, animal skin couldn't take away the shame of Adam and Eve. And animal blood could not wash away their sin. And a coal, no matter how hot, it can never purify the unclean lips of a sinful person. But in each of these occasions, Jesus is setting forth a symbol, for he would later give forth his own body to give that symbol its meaning. It would not be by animal blood that our sins could be washed away and our shame covered. It would be by the blood of the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, who would take our sin upon himself, upon that cross. And it is such that our shame shame might be covered with the skin, so to speak, of Jesus Christ. It would not be a burning coal to purify our uncleanliness, but our sanctification is purchased as Jesus felt the burning fury of God's wrath in our place. This is the wrath we deserve, not him. He feels that burn, and the only reason why Jesus can say to Simon Peter here, do not be afraid. It's because he knows that while you, Peter, have every legitimate reason to be afraid in my presence, what I'm about to do for you and for every single sinner who would but believe in me is to make my presence a joy and not a fear because I love you and I will forgive you at great cost to myself and I will cleanse you with the shedding of my own blood and I will make you new and give 
give you a new life because I am going to sacrifice my life for you and defeat your death by experiencing my death and rising from the grave. And I will take you with me and I will be yours and you will be mine. You need not fear me in this kind of way any longer because I have come to save you. And that's not just for Simon Peter. That is for everyone who would ever believe in Jesus the Christ. And what I think is even crazier in this moment is because Peter, confessing as he is, he doesn't even realize how sinful he's about to be in the future. He betrays Jesus and denies him three times, and yet Jesus knows that already, does he not? The Son of God doesn't enter into this relationship with his eyes shut. He knows Peter's sin better than Peter knows it. And he knows your sin better than you do. And that still did not prevent Jesus Christ from calling out to you and beckoning you to come and follow him. And that's exactly what Peter does. He leaves everything to follow Jesus. He doesn't even say, how about in a few days, Jesus, let's sell these fish first. No, right now, leave everything behind because there is nothing more important to me than following you. Don't you want to serve this God who knows the worst about you and yet he still wants you? Isn't he worth leaving everything behind for? And what better mission to spend our lives on than to tell everybody about the glory of Jesus Christ, even if it costs you everything. And it would be for Peter that by following Jesus, he would be a fisher for people rather than for fish. This same Peter, this broken Peter, is going to be used to usher in God's kingdom. 3,000 people come to salvation after a single one of his sermons in the book of Acts, which makes this catch in our text look like peanuts by comparison. Brothers and sisters, this is not the cocky and the confident and the able that God loves to use to build his church. But the broken, the ones who have come to an end of themselves, to find they're all in Christ rather than in themselves. Now, as we close, I think it's interesting, the contrast in our text. We have at the top of our passage the crowds pressing in on Jesus, all over him, trying to get as close to him as possible. And then we have Simon Peter trying to get away from Jesus as far away as possible. I think if Simon Peter in this moment were more like a crowd, his reaction wouldn't be, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. But let's partner up, Jesus, you and me. Because our fishing company is about to go next level. Counting the dollar bills in his head. And it can be frequently the case that we would rather use Jesus than see him for who he really is. That we want Jesus, the healer, keep us all safe, Jesus. Keep my kids safe in this very brief and momentary pass in life. This is everything. Or Jesus, the food multiplier, make what we have all the more bigger so that we can enjoy this stuff more than we ever did enjoy you. Or Jesus, the miracle worker, use all of your power to bless my little life. Center yourself, Jesus, around me. Rather than the call for us to center our lives around him. This is what is called the prosperity gospel. This is the health 
and wealth false teaching, that Jesus is there to fix all your problems and give to you everything that you want. That is a very false and demonic satanic gospel. In the book of Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says there, and you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Capernaum's a town that Jesus did a lot of ministry in. Will you be exalted to heaven, Capernaum? Jesus says, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire came down from the sky to destroy them because of their wickedness. And there's a kind of interest in Jesus that is more selfishly oriented than anything else and that is severely wicked when we only want Jesus for his power and not for his lordship. When we view ourselves as having a right to him rather than broken down and on our faces because we have no right to even be near him. And when we hear the word of God over and over again and again and still decide not to humble ourselves and follow him or admit that I'm sinful to the very core of who I am and I want change. If we can be exposed to the witness of Jesus and not come to that point, it is a very dangerous thing, brothers and sisters. Capernaum perished. And they saw the witness of the glory of God, and yet they never did truly follow him. And people come into church every Sunday, week in and week out, with the same story that they can hear about Christ and see the beauty of the gospel in theory, but I'm not leaving anything behind to follow you. Philip Ryken, he says this, sooner or later, every disciple must come to the point of full repentance. We have to see ourselves as we really are in all our sin. The way we see ourselves as we really are is by seeing Jesus as he really is in all his power and majesty. This was a great turning point in Peter's life as it is for everyone who follows Jesus. The point is not so much that we need to repent of this sin or that sin but that we need to repent of our whole sinful selves. Eventually, every disciple says what Peter says. I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. I am a sinful woman. I am a sinful boy or girl. But I want you. And I'll leave everything for you. Bring me close to yourself. This is a pattern for all disciples of Jesus Christ. We witness the glory of God in him and we feel intimately our sin and trauma before this holiness of God, and yet God brings us close. He forgives and heals us, and then God sends us on mission to live a new life which we hadn't lived prior. Are you on this mission? Are you living this new life? Have you seen Jesus Christ for who he really is? Have you seen yourself for who you really are? and yet have heard Jesus' voice saying, do not be afraid. Come and follow me. Then we must leave everything, brothers and sisters, and go and follow Jesus Christ. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, Matthew 16, 25, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
and that throughout human history, you have always sought after the lost sheep and the prodigals. And we thank you that even in sending your son Jesus here, being mobbed by a crowd of sinful people, you still call us to come and follow you. You still alleviate our fears. And, and I pray, God, for our church family and our people here, that by your grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit and through your word, we might have eyes to see your glory. We might have eyes to see ourselves. And even broken as we are, help us have eyes to see your love for us that transforms us, God. Would you please transform us so that we might spend all of our days and all of our energy fishing for others to see your glory as well. Please do this for your glory. Please give us a joy that, that nothing else can rival in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.